Welcome to the initial episode of the Lewis Brisbane BIPA podcast. My name is Josh Cantro. I'm here with the uh, co-chair of the BIPA practice group, Mary Smigelski. Hello, Mary. You ready to talk some BIPA today? Hello, Josh. I certainly am. All right. Well, we've done this a lot in front of live audiences and webinars and the like, but this is the initial podcast. And it comes from a state that passed the first BIPA statute. Um, what is BIPA? It is a statute that regulates the collection and storage um, of biometric information. And uh, it has been a hot topic in Illinois lately. It's been a hot topic because it is a hotbed of litigation. Over 1,000 class action lawsuits have been filed under this statute. It was passed back in 2008, but frankly, no one took notice of it until about five or so years ago when these class actions started being regularly filed. They became very, very attractive and multiplied very quickly after a 2019 decision of the Illinois Supreme Court, something that we're going to talk about. Yeah, that 2019 decision just opened the floodgates to BIPA litigation in the state. And by our rough estimation, uh, there have been about a thousand class actions filed relating to this statute. So um, I guess it would be interesting to start out maybe with like, how did Illinois, a state that is not known as being all that progressive with technology and technology laws, and I'm thinking like in the cyber world, which I'm also part of, where California and Connecticut were the leaders, okay, and New York to a certain extent as well. But BIPA, first BIPA statute came out of Illinois. How did that happen? Well, it came from a bankruptcy. There was a company called Pay by Touch that actually tested biometric technology in the state of Illinois. And that company at a certain point declared bankruptcy, and the biometric information was sold during the bankruptcy and the Illinois legislature took note. So it was a pretty interesting history with Pay by Touch because it was a company that was going gangbusters. It was had a lot of very, very good investors, uh, including major VC funds, professional athletes. They raised over $340 million. And the technology was essentially that you would use a thumbprint instead of a credit card or cash for certain transactions in grocery stores or convenience stores. So it really was what you thought, pay by touch. And despite the fact that they had done $150 million of acquisitions and had over 750 employees and a lot of square footage of office space in San Francisco, they ended up in trouble. Yeah. And so, you know, they were burning through a lot of cash, as I understand it, like $8 million a month. Um, and in fact, they lost about $50 million in one month. So they went and they filed for bankruptcy. And that's sort of when, when things really, really took off with the biometric, because biometric data was collected in that bankruptcy and sold in those bankruptcy proceedings. And lo and behold, the Illinois legislature takes note of that. 
Exactly. And with very, very little discussion publicly when this was passed, there's about two pages of a transcript for this bill. Back in 2008, they said biometrics are unlike other unique identifiers that are used to access finances or other sensitive information. For example, social security numbers when compromised can be changed. Biometrics, however, are biologically unique to the individual. Therefore, once compromised, the individual has no recourse. Okay, so the Illinois legislature was expressing a clear concern to say that biometric data is sort of like the, the gold mine of data, that if hackers were to get a, a hold of it, they could do a lot of damage in terms of taking someone's identity and, and the like. So, Josh, what are biometrics? Where do we find biometrics? And are all of them covered by this statute? Yeah. So, I mean, when when I think of biometrics, first of all, I think of, you know, thumbprints and fingerprints, because that is, at least in the cases that we've seen, um, probably 75% of it in terms of how those are collected and whether they're collected, possessed, stored in compliance with the statute. But there are also other types of biometric information. Well, exactly. And there are retina scans, there's scans of face geometry, there are voice prints, but then there are other things that are unique, biologically unique, as the legislature mentioned, that are actually not covered by the statute. And that's something that's very important because the statute is specific as to what it covers, and that's distinct from the types of technology that are out there and where these different types of technology is used. Because technology involving quote-unquote biometrics can be used in timekeeping systems for building security, for dispensing medication in hospitals, for laptop security, point-of-sale systems, uh, on a safe various commercial applications, and we've even seen it for certain school children paying for their lunches. Yeah, and all of those scenarios, I think, have come up in in the cases that you talked about. Um, you know, in the last five years, there's just been an explosion in this area, and we've seen, I think, most of these um, in, in the cases and in the lawsuits that have been filed. So from a practical standpoint, companies that do business in Illinois, and let me make clear that that is different than a company that is located in Illinois, because this statute doesn't just apply to a company that is physically present in, El in Illinois, but one that does business in Illinois. And so they must comply with a number of requirements. And uh, one of those is that they must notify employees and consumers if their biometric data, as defined by BIPA, is being collected, used, and stored, and they almost also must obtain prior written consent to do so, what are some of the other requirements? Well, they also need to have a publicly available written policy about the retention and destruction of biometric data and securely store biometric identifiers. And that leads to the question of what exactly is a biometric identifier? And that is something that's specifically defined by the statute. Yes, and the statute does define that. And it says that a biometric identifier means a retina or iris scan, fingerprint, voice print, or scan of hand or face geometry. 
Now, the statute goes on to um, define biometric information, and it partly incorporates the definition or, or the term biometric identifier in that definition, and it means any information, regardless of how it is captured, converted, stored, or shared, based on an individual's biometric identifier used to identify an individual. Exactly. And anyone who is a private entity who collects a biometric identifier or uses biometric information is covered by this statute. And that means any individual, any partnership, any corporation, any LLC, association, or other group, however organized, so this refers to and covers literally everyone. Does it cover governmental entities or agencies? So essentially, no. There are various exceptions to BIPA, and there are few, and we'll get into those in a little bit. Yes. It's interesting that the legislature passes a statute that exempts itself and other government agencies, but that's, uh, we will discuss that. We, we need to protect biometrics, yes. except when we don't. <laughs> right, exactly. All right. So, I mean, the, the real reason we're here and that we're discussing this with you is not to get into, like, the minutia of definitions and the like, but the simple plain fact of the economics of this. And the fact that in these Thousands, a thousand cases that have been filed, most of them end up settling, and, um, and there are millions of dollars involved in these settlements. In some settlements, hundreds of millions of dollars involved, right? Exactly. And that is because BIPA provides for statutory violations or actual damages, whichever are higher. And frankly, we have not seen a case yet where there have been actual damages because we have not seen these in the circumstances where there's been a data breach because there hasn't been. And we have not seen where there has been actual harm. But because there are statutory violations permitted, the money adds up very, very quickly. So that's interesting because the legislature, as we talked about a few minutes ago, was concerned about the cybersecurity aspect of this. And to our knowledge, there has, been, there has not been a reported cybersecurity breach involving biometric information under this statute. Um, and so that leads to there haven't been any cases that have alleged actual harm. Rather, all of the cases we've seen and are aware of have alleged statutory Damages. Exactly. And the legislature itself said that they wanted to protect the public welfare and security and safety by regulating biometrics. They were concerned about anything that would be happening with that data and what if it would get out, if it was going to be destroyed. So it's very interesting um, also that there are those exceptions. Yes. Yeah. So we talk about the this the statutory damages what what are they um what does the statute provide so the statute provides for $1000 for each negligent violation or $5000 for each intentional or reckless violation now, the statute does not define what it means by negligent nor does it define it 
spot what it means by reckless or intentional. Yeah, and it also doesn't really define what is a violation either. No, it does not. (laughs) And that has been the subject of quite a bit of litigation and um, some cases that are currently up on appeal before the Illinois Supreme Court. Yes, and we will get into that throughout the course of this this series. Um, So uh, when when is it that, that someone can actually file a lawsuit under BEPA, what, what do they have to show? They have to show very little to actually file a lawsuit. To have standing to sue, and let me go back a little bit on that. When these cases were first filed, all of us defense lawyers were looking at them saying, you have got to be kidding. There is no harm. There's been no data breach. There's been nothing that's been stolen. There has been essentially no problem here. Nothing has actually happened. And we were filing motions to dismiss saying the plaintiffs had no standing because there was no harm whatsoever that had occurred. But fast forward And that is a case that then went up to the Illinois Supreme Court and was decided in January of 2019. And then that tells us and instructs us who can actually file a lawsuit. Right. In that case, which is called the Rosenbach versus Six Flags Entertainment Corporation case, came up to the Supreme Court because there had been competing appellate decisions, intermediate appellate decisions, as I recall, that said... One said, you do have to show actual harm. The other said, you didn't. And Rosenbach reconciled those and said that no harm is required, that a mere statutory violation is sufficient to confer standing to sue. Now, um, Rosenbach was an interesting case because unlike so many of the cases we see that have involved um, time clocks where employees punch in and out with their fingerprint or thumbprint. Um, Rosenbach was a case, actually a consumer case involving um, someone uh, going into Six Flags. But what was was really um, interesting and from the defense standpoint, somewhat scary about Rosenbach was not just the actual holding, but the dicta. What was that about? Well, the court went well beyond a holding and a decision in that case. And the dicta was very, very consumer and plaintiff friendly. The court said, this is no mere technicality. The injury is real and significant. It also wrote, the precise harm that the Illinois legislature sought to prevent is then realized. And that is language that we have seen quoted over and over again in virtually every lawsuit that we have seen in this space. And those are legion at this point because after that decision in Rosenbach came down in 2019, truly the floodgates opened and more and more of these cases were filed and more and more firms became involved in this space. And that dicta that you just quoted, we also see in settlement demand letters in mediation statements. We hear about it from mediators when we're in, uh, trying to get cases settled, right? And uh, it, it really has had some far-reaching effects. And, and we've also seen it picked up by the federal courts that have, um, you know, quoted and referred to the Rosenbach decision. 
Well, and it's interesting, Josh, because you mentioned the settlements, you mentioned the mediation, you mentioned the demand letters and the complaints. What about actual litigation? How many of these cases have been going through actual litigation? Well, that's, that is interesting because they go through litigation in the sense that, you know, um, and this is something we do um, on our team with our, with our group is we like to position cases um, for the best result possible through filing motions and the like, and then maybe getting into a mediation after that where there's some doubt created about either whether the claim can proceed or whether some of it will be cut down or not. Uh, so, uh, but the truth is, is that has been going on for years now, but there have been very few cases that have actually proceeded far beyond that. But in the past week, we have a break, we have a breaking development, right? Our, our breaking development is that despite the fact that this statute has been around since 2008, we had our first BIPA trial that was tried as a class action case with a class of about 44,000 individuals certified that went to verdict. Yes. Yeah, that, that case went to verdict and... Um, it was not uh, a particularly um, pleasant verdict for the defense side of things, was it? No, it was not a good result for the defendant in that case. The jury determined that there had been reckless and intentional violations of BIPA, and the federal judge handling the case entered a judgment in the amount of $288 million. Wow. And that does not even include uh, attorney's fees, because those petitions are going to be coming. That is correct. And we understand that that verdict will be appealed. So it's likely that we will not have answers on that for several years. Yeah. And that verdict, again, what was interesting about that verdict is that it was in federal court. And federal court is somewhere that we try, whenever we get a BEPA case, we look at the complaint to see if this is a case that we can remove to federal court. And that is because we happen to be here in Chicago, where most of the BIPA cases are filed. They're filed in state court in Cook County, the Circuit Court of Cook County, which happens to be one of the most plaintiff-friendly venues in America. And this was so before BIPA was ever heard of, was ever enacted. Cook County has been a plaintiff-friendly venue, as have two downstate venues, St. Clair County, in Madison County, which are outside of St. Louis. Um, so we see a lot of BIPA cases filed there. Whenever we get those, we try to remove them to federal court because the federal court judges tend to grant, or at least you have a better chance of getting a dispositive motion granted, and the juries tend to be more moderate. But that wasn't the case here. No, it, it, it was not the case here. And juries are always unpredictable and, you know, Clearly, we'll look at all of the evidence in a particular case and enter that finding. Um, it's been interesting, however, since that verdict came down, there have been some who have been very, very concerned. There have been others who said, well, this is not surprising. This is what we expected. Hmm. The, the, and that includes um, the $5,000 intentional or reckless violation. That's right. And my standpoint, what I've heard about that is that, well, look, the statute has been around since 2008. 
This lawsuit that we're talking about that went to trial was filed, I think, in 2019. So by the time the lawsuit was filed, the statute had been around for 11 years. And perhaps the jury thought, well, this has been around for a long time and you're still not in compliance. Absolutely. And that does raise the question of what does a company need to do to be in compliance? Absolutely. And anyone today who is using anything that is even arguably biometric needs to be reviewing whether they're in compliance with BIPA. And there is technology that does not fall under the statute because it does not collect a biometric identifier as defined in the statute, but there's other technology that absolutely does. And our recommendation certainly is that unless you want to have your tech experts make that distinction and truly rely on it, Put a BIPA policy in place. Right. Get in compliance with the statute. I mean, that is one of the key lessons, not only from this verdict that we're talking about, but from a lot of the settlements that have come in very, very high. Um, Get in compliance. Now, we have seen some companies, they don't want to get in compliance. And so what they do is they just get rid of their biometric technology and they go back to those old-fashioned time clocks that are technology, what, from the 1920s or so? Which is not a bad idea, given what BIPA provides. Unless you need to be using biometric technology in Illinois, unless your business is fundamentally based on biometric technology, why take the chance with this landscape? Yeah, that is absolutely true. It is very interesting, isn't it, that although so many cases have been filed, not as many have been proceeding forward in litigation. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to talk about legal developments in some cases that have proceeded in litigation, or at least enough to get some interesting rulings from both the state and federal courts in episode two. So thank you for joining us for our initial episode. And please uh, tune in as we continue this series and let your friends and colleagues who are interested in this area know about it. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. 